Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is season six, episode four. Episode four already. Uh, January's almost over. (laughs) Uh, Where did it go? Uh, But here we are. My name is Rick. I am an author of, uh, about five years ago, a book called The Jesus-Centered Life, which emerged out of a previous book that was focused for youth ministry called Jesus-Centered Youth Ministry. Somewhere in the middle of all that, I led the team that created the Jesus-Centered Bible and uh, a, kind of a unique one-of-a-kind Bible that um, wherever you're reading, no matter Old Testament, New Testament, wherever you are, we have uh, eight special features that help you focus in on Jesus no matter where you are. And it's an immersive uh, Jesus hot tub of a Bible. <laughs> that wasn't in any of the marketing material, as I recall. Um, anyway, I led the team that created that and contributed a bunch of stuff to that. And since then, I've written another book called Spiritual Grit and released a new version of an old book. Uh, this one is called The God Who Fights For You. And most recently, The Jesus Center Daily. Uh, released just in early October of last year, a daily devotional that gives you kind of an upending experience of the heart of Jesus every day from a very unexpected vantage point, usually, um, along with a few things to ponder, consider, and do. Uh, the, the subtitle there is lists the five senses, sight, hearing, taste, touch. What am I leaving out? smell. <laughs> so, and that's, that references uh, some of the creative experiments I give, one for every devotion that helps you to uh, viscerally experience something connected to the devotional thought of that day. So that's one thing that makes it unique. So if you uh, have not yet picked up a copy of the Jesus Center Daily, uh, you can Get a 10-day sampler if you just go to jesuscenteredaily.com. I put a little button on there that will give you download a free sampler of 10 days and you want to check it out. You can also just go uh, buy it right from the site if you want to. Um, or you can go, of course, to, to Amazon. If you do go to the Jesus Center Daily site, there's also a little introduction video I posted on there to give you an overview of the thought and heart behind this devotional and what you can expect to experience by by reading it through the year and if you already have a copy and you kind of love it you might consider gifting a copy to someone in your life that you think might really benefit from a daily immersive experience of jesus so there you have it jesus center daily so this is the seventh episode in a series we started last year called kingdom come And really what this is about is embracing and living out the culture of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They have a culture. They have a, if you want to call it this, a family system. And in that culture, they honor certain things and decry certain things. And Jesus came to plant this culture of the Trinity in this broken and messed up world we live in. Really what he came to do is plant seeds in our hearts that this culture would emanate from the inside out when he changes our heart. So when Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again, he's really also saying you must be born into the culture of the Trinity, the culture of the kingdom of God, so that your heart naturally wants to follow and invite others into that embedded culture, that countercultural culture. So, Um, that's what we're exploring. What does it mean to live in the kingdom of God? And today we're going to explore beauty. So uh, tracking back a couple weeks now, uh, the week that we celebrated the life and legacy of Martin Luther King, I wrote a blog post that I called, I can't remember the exact title, but uh, it referenced Dr. King's nightmare. And that story is, I had, I had only recently heard this story. I'd never heard this story before. And then I heard a pastor right, at, uh, right before MLK Day 
um, tell this story. And I thought, wow, why have I never heard this before? So of course, uh, in 1963, Martin Luther King um, stood in front of the Lincoln Memorial and gave his famous, I have a dream speech where he uh, is really one of the, the greatest speeches in American history, um, where he was trying to galvanize a country around the dream of equality and diversity in our culture that's really embedded in the constitution itself. And um, we all remember hearing at least a clip from that great speech about Martin Luther King, King's dream of the kind of culture and society that actually reflected values in the kingdom of God. Um, and, but four years later in 1967, just a little less than a year before he was assassinated, he gave an interview to NBC News where he talked about that dream becoming a nightmare for him. And the reason that dream had descended into a nightmare is that he thought that he would have allies um, who would help him in this fight for civil rights and help him in this fight to plant the values of the kingdom of God in American culture. He thought that he would have expected allies. And those allies would be people that had committed their lives to following Jesus, who was, by the way, if you could say anything about Jesus, it was that he was a champion of the marginalized. His closest friends, the people he hung out with, were marginalized people. His, uh, his most upending things he did in his ministry were with marginalized people. He included and invited and healed and championed and honored the mar marginalized and, and did uh, so many things that were offensive to his culture to try to include the marginalized in normative culture. So if you can say anything about Jesus, it's that. So Martin Luther King thought he would have allies in those who were leaders in the body of Christ, those who not only committed to following Jesus, but were leading others to do the same. But what he discovered is that a large number of those people that he thought would be allies actually brutalized him and punished him and relentlessly opposed him in this effort. And you can see in this 1967 interview, just the exhaustion that he had about it. So I, I referenced this in a previous podcast as well, that I had written, and then I had written this, this blog post and, um, and was really trying to focus on what King was saying about the, the uh, disappointment and disillusionment he felt around the expected allies that would, did not come alongside him. And those expected allies, of course, are white Christian leaders. So when I posted a link to that blog on my Twitter account, um, by that evening, I had immediately lost 70 followers. So um, you can tell Twitter has analytics and it tells you how many people have dropped off and 70 people dropped off the day that I posted that blog to my Twitter account. That night at the dinner table, I told my kids in kind of an offhand way, oh, by the way, today I lost 70 followers on Twitter because of the, um, the blog that I posted about MLK's nightmare and, and why it was a nightmare. And my kids were shocked. <clears throat> they, they, they were concerned for me, <laughs> like, like in, a, in a, you know, a, a young adult world, a teenager's world, um, rejection is a, is a huge deal. It's not like it's a small deal to me either. But I didn't experience this really viscerally as rejection. I'm a realist. I understand why 70 of my followers were so offended that though they've been following me for years on Twitter, they immediately said, that's too much for me. And they got off. But for my kids, it was shocking. Uh, they, they just had a hard time getting their heads around. Why would other Christians or Christian leaders stop following me because of a blog post that focused on that. Um, and I, it was another, I remember thinking after that conversation that it was another intrusion of ugly into beauty. It was another in a long string for my kids of the ugliness of the world. And in some cases, the ugliness of the human heart, the not yet redeemed ugliness of the human heart. It was another brush with that in their lives. And they've had so many this year. We've seen so many images and heard so many ugly things and um, experienced so much ugliness in our everyday life that it's almost like 
we're, we, we've become numb to the ugliness in some ways. And that's, of course, the worst possible thing that could happen is to not have any longer a visceral reaction to the ugly. I think in some ways, MLK, four years after his I Have a Dream speech, the exhaustion and tiredness I heard in his voice in that interview, there probably was also some numbness because he had experienced this ugliness for so long that how do you deal with it day after day after day? And we're kind of in that place right now as well. We've been dealing with ugly for so long that it's easy to get numb, numb to it when it happens again. Um, so we've seen um, ugly images of uh, uh, insurrectionist crowds trying to take over the Capitol and maybe even assassinate some members of Congress. And we've seen, we've heard ugly things said to people. We've read ugly things said to, to, to people on social media. I was talking with my wife the other day. She does not have a social media account. She doesn't, she's not on Twitter or Facebook. And sometimes she wonders if she should get on Facebook in particular to be better connected with people. And, and she mentioned something that she, she wished she could have posted after uh, something was, was reported on in the news that day. And I said, Bev, if you post, if you had a Facebook account and you posted that, you could be sure that you would have some people flaming you somewhere in those responses. And do you want to invite that into your life? So our conversation was really about how much ugly do we invite into our life? And of course, social media is, is sort of a conduit for that. It can be a conduit for other things as, to, as well, obviously, but it's definitely a conduit for ugly. People will treat each other, we all know this, in the digital world in a way they would never treat each other face-to-face. So how much ugly can we handle before we become numb to it? You know, if you're a longtime listener to the podcast, you'll recognize that I often use a favorite phrase to describe the mission of Jesus. He came, Jesus came to make beauty out of ugly. Jesus came to make beauty out of ugly. That's one way to describe his mission. Now, I didn't say he came to make, make pretty out of ugly. I said he came to make beauty. Now, beauty is deep. It's, it, it's, it's uh, sort of a marker for the heart of Jesus. He not only honors beauty and points out beauty and talks beauty and lives beauty, he is beauty. The source of all beauty comes from him. In the kingdom of God, beauty is like the air you breathe. Beauty, uh, beauty surrounds you. Beauty immerses you. Beauty defines you in the kingdom of God. Um, I love um, how beauty is the focus of Michael Gunger's iconic, unforgettable worship song, Beautiful Things. Um, here's the, the lyrics to the quiet beginning of that worship song, Beautiful Things. All this pain, I wonder if I'll ever find my way. I wonder if my life could really change at all. All this earth, could all that is lost ever be found? Could a garden come out from this ground at all? Well, you make beautiful things. You make beautiful things out of the dust. You make beautiful things. You make beautiful things out of us. Maybe as you're hearing that, those lyrics, and you've before sung the song, you're singing it in your head right now. It is such a beautiful juggernaut of a song. Um, it brings tears to me every time I, I hear it. We'll be listening to this song at the very end of the podcast today, too, by the way. So if your appetite for the song has been whetted now, you'll, we'll try, to, we'll try to, to fill your soul with that at the very end. But in a very real, practical, visceral way, Michael Gunger is capturing something that is central to Jesus. It's beauty making and beauty revealing. That is exactly what Jesus is doing in the world. He's making beauty and revealing beauty in us and in others and in the world itself. Um, uh, I, the other night, I watched an episode from a Netflix documentary series that my youngest daughter, Emma, who's 18, um, is into, but I have never watched it uh, so far. I didn't seem interested in it, but 
Last night just felt like the right night to watch an episode with her. It's called The World's Most Extraordinary Homes. And my daughter, who loves style and beauty, loves this show because it's not the world's most beautiful homes. It's the world's most extraordinary homes. And so the homes that the uh, two co-hosts of this show go into are uh, amazing in one way or another. And it's really a show that focuses on architecture and how architecture meshes into the way we live. And in this case, the architecture that we're seeing is extraordinary. It's incredibly creative. And in almost every case, the architecture that they lift up on the show has some kind of embedded relationship with its surroundings. And that's what makes it very interesting. So one of the homes profiled in the episode that I watched um, is, a, is a home owned by Michael Saracen, um, who's a cinematographer for one of the Harry Potter movies and many, many other films. He's a rather famous cinematographer. His home is on the coast in New Zealand. And this home was custom made, um, custom designed by an, uh, an architect and then built in one of the most unlikely places. It's right next to the shore. I mean, just paces away from the shore in the middle of what looks like a, a rainforest. It's just this home has been integrated into this lush New Zealand forest that in a way that, that creates this staggeringly beautiful living space. When you're inside the home, it's, it's, it almost feels like what heaven might feel when you're inside this home. There's so much of the home is designed to be just intimately integrated into its surroundings, into this forest. So there's so many, you know, floor to ceiling, wall to wall windows, but the, the home itself is integrated into the landscape of this coastal forest, so much so that it just seems almost like a natural part of it. So the show is hosted by an award-winning architect named Piers Taylor and a British actress, and she calls herself a property enthusiast. <laughs> Her name is Carolyn Quinton. She's, a, a, again, a, a sort of a middle-aged to older um, British act, uh, actress. So um, in, the, in, in this particular segment where they're, they're exploring Michael Saracen's home, um, Carolyn Quentin is sitting at a table with Saracen and the man, the local New Zealand builder that he hired to actually build his home. His name is David Kepis. And I want us to listen to this segment where you'll hear Carolyn Quentin ask questions, and then you'll hear both Michael Saracen and David Kepis respond. But they're having, they're, what they're really doing is having a conversation about beauty. So let's listen. Why did you look for this incredible piece of land in the first place? I came out once from the States, looked at something which was further out of the sounds, and then I heard about this one, which is 75 acres. The light was nice, it faces north, so we had sun most of the day. I also loved that we could build close to the water. I also loved that we had a waterfall. Yeah. So you sort of got it in front of you and behind you, and just stuff fell into place. There was something quite organic, I guess. Was it fairly, so it was an immediate sort of response to the land and the light, was yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. Michael is dogmatic about beauty. So, as the builder, you either say, I'm going to bust my gut to try and interpret what this guy means by beauty. I came to the conclusion that I was better to ignore that. <laughs> and fortuitously, I think our tastes coalesce somewhat. Right. No, no, absolutely. This house is all about reclaimed wood and the use of wood. And actually, I've seen lots of reclaimed things around it. Well, all the hardwood is recycled. I'm reclaimed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I also like the sort of its age. I thought, why not have the house sort of constructed with old stuff, which has some history? Well, I think that's what I mean. You get a very real sense of that when you when you walk in. It is. I mean, it's a contemporary house, but it already has personality and life, and you feel that it's had lots of areas. It had lots and lots of life before. The thing is you throw away the spirit level on a job like this. The house is like a work of art. It's like an installation in an art gallery. The workings of the house are secondary to that primary goal of surrounding oneself with beauty. This aesthetic was extended to the relationship the house has to the natural environment. 
preserving the beauty of the landscape that surrounded his waterside home was paramount to Michael. This came with its own problems, especially when David began building the house on this tricky site, so close to the shoreline and surrounded by trees. The soil here is extremely unstable. The, the, all of this area is um, referred to by local authority as a natural hazard area. Gosh. So what we had to do here to support the house was drive railway irons six metres into the ground before we could pour any concrete. So we needed to bring in a pile driving rig. And along the way, there are a number of old beech trees. So I heroically climb onto the digger with a little pruning saw up to the top of one of the beech trees and surgically remove a little branch. And then I hear a bellowing scream from the building platform. Who could that possibly be? Who could that's the client? And what I learned very quickly was that the trees on the site were sacrosanct. Right. He wanted to take the stuff out, and I said to him very politely and kindly, for every tree you take down, I cut off a finger. He said, oh, fair enough. So, but look at it now, isn't it incredible? If they'd taken them all down, I just, the house feels settled in the landscape. Which is just thrilling. I think that is, that must be about your sense of composition and light and space. And I guess, yeah. Things. I mean, that's for other people to say. I'm not aware of it because this is how well, I'm, I'm saying it. it. It's me yeah, I'm saying it. It's not to me to say it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is a very peaceful place. The only sounds are birdsong, wind and water. That's it. And I love that. The, the essence of like natural naturalness. And I think it's also manifested in the building to a degree. The mm. quality of the light, the quality of the design, the quality of the uh, building special. For what it's worth, I think it's um, perfect. Thank you. Thank you. All right, just a little, uh, obviously, you know, it would have helped. This is audio. It's a podcast after all. But it would have helped that to, for you to see the surroundings, obviously, as he's talking about it. I'll put a link to the show on the uh, episode page for this podcast. Again, this is season six, episode four. You can go to painridiculousattentiontojesus.com and look for the link to the show if you want to check it out. Um, this particular segment is from the, the show that's about coastal homes, if you want to go find that there. But uh, one little detail, too, that, that um, you would never know just by listening to this interview is that uh, the dock that leads to the stairs that lead to the home, the dock that uh, the coastal dock that he has jutting out, right at the end of that dock, he has a very large cross set up. We don't hear, of course, in the, in the, in the interview why that is, but if, I don't know if you caught it because of the accent, but when they're talking about reclaimed wood, that was used throughout the home, Michael Saracen says, I myself am reclaimed. Now, if I was an interviewer, I would have pounced on that <laughs> to find out what he meant by that, but we're left to wonder what he meant. But there's something hinted there in the fact that he has a very large cross set up at the end of his entrance dock. Hmm. Makes you want to pursue what, uh, what you get the feeling of as a damaged life that has been reclaimed. And we also hear in this a man who is really quite fierce about beauty. So no tree or branch harmed. He made that clear to his builder, David Geddes. No tree or branch harmed. I am fierce about the beauty. And he creates a space for living that's not just planted in a beautiful place, but it's integrated into the beauty of that place in a way that frames and spotlights it. It's really if you if you're to watch this, you'll probably have the same feeling I had when you get invited into this space. It's really simultane simultaneously calming and staggering at the same time. That's what beauty does. It it calms us and staggers us at the same time. It's a, it, if you were to combine calm and stagger, you might get awe. Beauty creates awe, and if you keep following this thread down the beauty that creates awe leads to worship. That's essentially what worship is. It's reflecting back to Jesus, the beauty we experience in him. Worship songs that don't help us do that, in my mind, aren't really worship songs, because worship is about encountering the beauty of Jesus. And when a song helps us to do that, and I think Michael Gunger's song, Beautiful Things, does help us to do that, 
then something lifts and elevates in our soul. That's what worship is for, to elevate our soul, to reflect back to Jesus, the truth about who he is, um, to mark the moment when we are in awe. Um, and that's what happens when you're actually inside this home that Michael Saracen and his builder created. You feel a sense of awe, but it's a lived-in awe. It's not a special or set-apart sort of awe. It's a awe that you can live in. Um, and Saracen set out to create a home that honored that kind of beauty. And whether he knows it or not, his deep appreciation for beauty is actually a deep appreciation for the heart of beauty himself. That's Jesus. It doesn't matter whether people always understand that they're worshiping Jesus <clears throat> when they're honoring beauty. Um, Jesus said that if the people stopped crying out um, uh, worshipful things as he entered Jerusalem before the cross, he told uh, the, the disturbed religious leaders, if these people stopped worshiping me and, the, and were suddenly muted, then the rocks themselves would cry out. The rocks would react in awe. And sometimes even those who are, have shut themselves off from the person of Jesus can't help themselves. They, are, they honor beauty, not knowing really viscerally the, the source of that beauty. We need people like Michael Saracen in the world. We need beauty fighters especially in this season of ugly. And you know what? It's always been a season of ugly in the world. There is always ugliness that needs to be fought with beauty. We need beauty fighters. Want to join? <laughs> join, join the army of beauty fighters. So I thought what would be interesting is for us to <clears throat> dive bomb into the gospel of John just randomly I'm just going to pull up Bible Gateway on my screen, and I'm going to randomly choose a place in the Gospel of John, and we'll do this with two or three places. And I'm just going to encounter the beauty of Jesus that I find there. So when I select randomly one of these places, I'll read a little bit until I feel like stopping, and then I'll backtrack to explore the beauty I found in that place. And so I'm going to just let Jesus... Uh, uh, be present to wherever I land here and show himself, show, show his beauty. What we're going to be doing here is paying attention in a ridiculous way to what he models and what he says. We're going to try to understand his heart in the moment. And if we can do that, then maybe we can ingest that heart, eat his body and drink his blood is what he's invited us to do. So if we encounter him and we stop long enough to reflect back the beauty we're experiencing in him, what we're really doing is ingesting. In order to reflect back the beauty, we have to first ingest it. So that really is what it means to eat his body and drink his blood. It's to ingest him, to pause, to savor, to swirl around in our mouth, to, to taste and see that he's good. So let's do that. And because once we ingest that beauty, then we can live it out in our lives. So let's, uh, let's choose a few random places in the Gospel of John, stop and ask Jesus to unveil his beauty wherever we find it. So let's, let's just go, I'm just going to start off somewhere near the start of uh, John chapter 2. I just called up John 2. Here's the story of the wedding at Cana. Let's just read this for a second. <clears throat> Again, think about what is beautiful about this scene and what is beautiful about Jesus in this scene. The next day, there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus's mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivity, so Jesus's mother told him, they have no more wine. Well, dear woman, that's not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. Standing nearby were six stone water jars used for the Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, go fill those jars with water. And then when the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master ceremonies. 
So the servants followed his instructions. And the master's ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though, of course, the servants knew. He called the bridegroom over and he said, a host always serves the best wine first, he said. And then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine, but you've kept the best till until now. He was calling the guy out. <laughs> this miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Stop there. So here we're encountering Jesus. What do we find beautiful in him? Let's slow down. First of all, he's at a party. He's at a wedding party. He's not the, uh, the, um, the head clerk of the religious institution of the day. <laughs> he, he is a, a real person. He's fully God and fully human. And Jesus enjoys parties. And that means he enjoys laughing and dancing and eating and drinking and all of the things that happen at a party, and especially the social connections, the relationships, the easy, relaxed, time-filled way that you can spend when you're at a party to just connect with people. Jesus was drawn to connecting with people in a lighthearted way, not always in a teaching way. And here he is. He hasn't even started his ministry yet, and he shows up at a big party. And it's a multi-day party, by the way. That's what wedding celebrations were back in the day. So for days, he would be relating and laughing and enjoying the company of his friends and family um, in this highly intimate community experience. Jesus loved this setting. And the fact that he is drawn to community, even lighthearted community, is beautiful. It's, it's uh, something that whets our appetite for even more of the same. And then his mother tells him about a problem that's, that's happened with the, the bride and groom. And it's kind of an embarrassment that they've run out of wine. And Jesus, uh, he's differentiated. That's another beautiful thing about him. He's differentiated. His mother comes to him, asking him, telling him about a problem. She hasn't yet asked him anything. She's just telling him, they don't have any more wine. And because Jesus is differentiated, he says, that's not our problem. He's not taking on the problems of someone else and without their permission and without their invitation and just going out to fix that. That's beautiful <laughs> to be differentiated and not fuzz the boundaries between you and the other person is beautiful. And he says to his mother, my time has not yet come. So he respects his mother, but he's also confident he is not worried about his self-esteem and he's not worried about how his mother will take him saying, no, I'm not going to do that. He is willing to disappoint his mother and tell her it's, it's not time for me. Again, not only is he differentiated from others, he's differentiated in his own family and from his mother's wishes, which when we see a man who is generous and kind and loving and yet doesn't overfunction and doesn't live out of a place of guilt and shame and duty. We find that beautiful. And here we find it in the heart of Jesus as well. And then his mother does something funny and wry. She, she tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. I can just imagine her saying that with a, this kind of wry smile on her face. He's poking at him. That's another beautiful thing. How could how could the mother of Jesus poke at him in this way if they didn't have a poking at you kind of relationship where you could give wry smiles to each other and, and enjoy each other and push each other, push each other's buttons a little bit also in a playful way? Jesus enjoys the playful relationship he has with his mother. So in light of her wry smile, he, she captures him. She, she put the little bait out there and she hooked him. So he decides, okay, <laughs> yeah, I told her it's not my time, but I'm going to do it anyway. And he sees these huge stone water jars and he tells the servants to fill them. Now these are, <clears throat> these jars hold 20 to 30 gallons and he's asked them to fill them with water. And he hasn't said anything about why he's doing it. They're just remembering that the, the Jesus' mother told them do whatever he tells you. <laughs> I love that. In fact, um, when I'm leading groups of people, one of the very first things I say, because we do so many things that are interactive and experiential and make people uncomfortable sometimes, 
I just tell them that I really only have one rule that they need to keep in mind as we move through whatever we're going to do. And that rule is do whatever I tell you to do. <laughs> and people always laugh, but it's, I, I do mean it truthfully underneath the laughter that I'm inviting them to stop standing uh, apart from something and just dive in. And that's what the mother tells the servants, just dive in, do whatever he tells you. So they're filling these water jars, these stone water jars with 20 to 30 gallons of water. This had to take a long time. So meanwhile, they must be thinking, what the heck are we doing this for? <laughs> I mean, why are we filling these with so much water? And meanwhile, Jesus is laughing and relating and um, thinking. Um, he's thinking well, uh, about what he's, gonna, what he's about to do. And he knows that what he's about to do is going to be a marker moment. From this point on, his quote-unquote public ministry begins. And he did not choose this time, but he's chosen to make it that time um, out of playfulness in his relationship with his mother. So he says to the servants then, now once the water jars are filled, now dip some out and take it to the master's ceremonies. So this is so fun. Uh, the, the servants still know, don't know what they're doing. They just think they're dipping out some water and taking it to the MC of the big party. They have no idea why they're doing this. They're just doing whatever he told them to do. And meanwhile, Jesus and his disciples are standing there watching this whole drama play out. They're watching as the servants come up with the, with the, uh, the, the uh, dipping thing. <laughs> I just forgot what to call it. Uh, uh, they, they've dipped out some water. They take it to the MC and they're watching as this happens. And then the MC takes a sip, tastes the water that was in that they had, that had been served to them. And um, when he, when he tastes the water, it turns out it's fine wine. And imagine the servant's reaction when they see the master's ceremonies reacting this way, like, oh my gosh, what has happened? What just happened? I know we just filled those with water. That's all that was in there. And he's acting like it's wine. Of course, the master ceremonies didn't know where it came from, but it says here in the account, the servants knew, of course. So the master ceremonies calls the bridegroom over and then uh, it, Jesus must have just been enjoying his prank. So here's what else is beautiful about the heart of Jesus. He, his heart likes to play pranks. <laughs> He is not the stiff, stoic, um, glowering sort of savior that we've been led to believe growing up in the church. Here he's playing a prank, not only in the master ceremonies, but the bridegroom himself, and he, and he lets it go on. He doesn't step in and say, hey guys, you know what I did there? <laughs> he doesn't. He just lets it play out in front of him, and he's enjoying it. I can imagine Jesus doubled over laughing in the moment. Isn't that remarkable? What an expression of beauty that Jesus launches his ministry doubled over in laughter. Isn't that attractive? Isn't that magnetic? Doesn't it draw you to him in his beauty? Doesn't it start to seed a little bit of awe about who he is and how he relates to others? Um, it says this miraculous sign at Cana was the first time Jesus revealed his glory. Well, his glory is not, we always translate that as that he turned water into wine. Uh, his glory is his miracle, miracle working, but his glory is also his personality, his essence, his presence. He's revealing in a kind of a, in an epic way, the nature of who he is. And what we find in the nature of who he is, is beauty. All right, so uh, there you have the wedding at Cana. Let's just click the arrow forward and choose another random place. And let's just go to John 7, and we'll leave it at this. John chapter 7. Let's, let's just uh, choose a little story here, the, uh, in starting in verse 16. John 7, 16. In, in my Jesus-centered Bible, the heading reads, Jesus walks on water. Let's read this little account. That evening, Jesus' disciples went down to the shore to wait for him. But as darkness fell and Jesus still hadn't come back, they got into the boat and headed across the lake toward Capernaum. Soon a gale swept down upon them, and the sea grew very rough. 
They had rowed three or four miles when suddenly they saw Jesus walking on the water toward the, bro- toward the boat, and they were terrified. But he called out to them, don't be afraid, I'm here. Then they were eager to let him in the boat. And when they did, they immediately arrived at their destination. So here's what's happening right before this little scene. Jesus had just fed a crowd of 5,000 um, by taking the five barley loaves and two fish that a young boy offered and asking his disciples to have everyone sit down. And then he broke the loaves and the fish and gave thanks to God for it. And then he distributed it to the people. And afterward, they had all of these leftover baskets full of food. Um, they filled 12 baskets with the scraps of those of that food. And when the people saw him do this, like incredible thing, they're, they just, they're jazzed, I guess is the best way to say it. They, they said, he's the prophet we've been expecting. This guy must be the one. This must be the Messiah that we've been looking for. And then it says, Jesus saw that they were ready to force him to be their king. So he slipped away into the hills by himself. So he got out of there. Um, he went to a quiet place to recover himself from this in- incredible experience. And that's what precedes this little scene. Uh, the disciples just got tired of waiting for him. Um, so they got in the boat and headed across the lake. Now, why they just left Jesus there? Well, think about this for a second. Um, they had been with him for some time now. And the fact that Jesus hadn't come back and, they, and it was getting late and they needed to get to Capernaum, that think about the trust and belief that those disciples invest in Jesus. They're expecting Jesus to take care of himself. So what you can infer by this is that they believe that if Jesus had not yet come back, then he had a very good reason for not coming back. And they weren't worried about how he was going to take care of himself or even get to Capernaum. Um, Jesus had already engendered in his disciples this sense of his, um, his not, I don't want to say self-confidence, his self-presence, the sense of uh, a person well-founded in himself, and that they believed in his capabilities, that they had a kind of an intrinsic trust that Jesus could take care of himself no matter what the situation was. Isn't that attractive in a person, not an arrogant person who boasts about how they can take care of themselves, just a, a, a very capable, flexible um, uh, person who, who can morph in the, in the situation and not be overcome by the situation, that they maintain their presence no matter what. That's the Jesus that they're responding to when they get in a boat and go across the lake toward Capernaum. They're not worried that Jesus won't be able to meet them wherever they're going. And then they get in the middle of the storm in the, in the night and the sea got really rough and they were already three or four miles out. And it was scary, even for those who were career fishermen to get caught in a big storm on the, on the sea in the middle of the night can be very scary. And then they see Jesus walking on the water toward the boat and they were terrified by him. But of course, they're terrified by him. And he calls out to them, don't be afraid, I'm here. So Jesus, of course, could have just walked across the sea and never shown himself to his disciples in their boat. But he's intending to walk close enough to them that they see him. And he understands that once they see him walking on the water in the middle of the night in the middle of a storm, it's going to be terrifying. But uh, the only thing we can infer then is that Jesus is okay with even engendering some of their fear so that he can quickly put their fears to rest, that that they're in the middle of their terror. And what he does is say, it's okay. Don't worry. I'm here. Nothing bad is going to happen to you. Um, Be at peace. There's something, do you know someone in your life who, when they just enter the room, they bring peace with them. You feel a sense of calm and security. Jesus brought security with him. His heart is secure. And that's what, when reflected out, we experience his beauty. That secure heart draws us like a magnet because it's beautiful. And then it says they were eager to let him in the boat and immediately they arrived at their destination. 
So all was well. It was like the storm passed as soon as Jesus stepped into the boat. What a beautiful experience to be in relationship with a Jesus who, when we invite him in, we experience that like the sun rising or the storm stopping. The sense of his presence, it doesn't mean that that um, our quote-unquote rough seas will never happen again. All it means is that when he is with us, we can't even explain it, but the beauty of his presence creates a kind of calm, a joy. It doesn't wipe out our circumstances, but it does infect our circumstances with joy. That's what makes Jesus so beautiful. Now we could go on and on and on here, um, just skipping through the gospels. What we would encounter is a is beauty over and over and over again in the heart of Jesus. That is really the story of the gospels, the unveiling of the beauty of Jesus. And again, the, the, it's, it's also the seed, the, the acorn um, of awe and worship. It all comes back to experiencing his beauty. So let's close the episode today by just listening, taking a reflective moment to listen to Michael Gunger's song, beautiful things. I, I gave you the, the lyrics <clears throat> that begin the song before, but now let's just take a few minutes, relax, close your eyes if you can, if you're not driving, just drink in the lyrics of this song and think about the beauty of Jesus we just encountered in these two separate stories in the gospel of John. Think about that and join in, join Michael if you want to, sing along with him. Let's listen.
in my eyes. <laughs> it happens every time. Maybe they're in your eyes too. I have a good friend um, named John who cries when we're together a lot. And one time I asked him uh, what the tears meant. And he said, when he feels close to Jesus, the tears come. I thought that was a beautiful way of describing the tears that worship brings. So if you're, you have tears in your eyes, it's a precious, valued, honored, and noticed form of worship. Thank you everybody for listening. Um, again, if you wanna uh, explore some of what we talked about on the podcast today, um, I'll put links to these things on the uh, podcast episode page. Just go to painridiculousattentiontojesus.com, season six, episode four, and you'll find everything you need there. Again, this is Pain Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. What a fun adventure that is. A podcast from ricklawrence.com. You can subscribe on Google Play or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll see you again next time.